Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. In today's podcast, Beyond Diversity to Inclusion, Hydric and Struggles engagement leader Bill Bradley welcomes David Casey, Vice President of Workforce Strategies and Chief Diversity Officer at CVS Health, to discuss the distinction between diversity and inclusion, his company's efforts in creating a diverse and inclusive culture, and the challenges he faces in sustaining and growing this necessary corporate focus. Prior to CVS, David served with the Marine Corps in Operation Desert Storm, and then as Vice President of Workforce Culture and Chief Diversity Officer at WellPoint, a health benefits company. Now, in addition to his current corporate leadership position, David is co-chair of the Corporate Diversity Management Leadership Council. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be here. An honor to be here. Great. Before we dive into today's topic, Beyond Diversity to Inclusion, can you briefly provide some context on your journey into a career in workforce strategies and diversity and inclusion? <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely. <laughs> you, you have an interesting background, yeah. and I believe that will help provide context throughout our discussion. Yeah, thank you, Bill. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I tell people all the time, my personal life has played a significant role in shaping my professional life. So you think about the role of a chief diversity officer and uh, people always ask, how do you get there? How do I get a job as a chief diversity officer? And quite frankly, I just tell them, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I you, when you look at my background, uh, I spent some time in the military and the service. And, uh, you know, some of these lessons that I got in diversity started early on and even in the Marine Corps. Back in the day, you know, we were taught that there were two shades of, uh, of marine, light green and dark green. That was it. <laughs> so, you know, you think about, okay, well, what does that mean? So, yeah, I, I, I kind of fell into this, to be honest, Bill. I uh, worked in uh, advertising, and I had a client who went to work uh, to lead up the HR function at uh, WellPoint, now known as Anthem. And uh, he called me up one day and said, hey, look, I've really enjoyed working with you in the advertising space. You helped us uh, figure out how to brand our employer, our company as an employer of choice. I want to start up this diversity thing. Uh, would you be interested in coming to join us? And um, I didn't know what, what diversity. This was 17 years ago, right? I mean, nobody, nobody was talking using the words diversity or chief diversity officer. So I said, that sounds interesting. <laughs> You know, let me read up on that and figure out what it is. <laughs> so I did that and, um, you know, studied and, and you know, kind of learned some things from uh, one of my mentors. But uh, I kind of fell into it, to be quite honest. And it's been a, um, a very exciting, personally and professionally uh, fulfilling journey. Great. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Let's jump into our topic, Beyond Diversity to Inclusion. So why is diversity and inclusion tough to improve in an organization? If you could please start with the terms, diversity, inclusion. Yeah. Define those for us. And I'll tell you what, if you want to know why it's so hard for companies to get real traction in this space, I think it's because we don't have conceptual clarity around what it is. I've heard people tell me, aren't we done talking about diversity? Aren't we through with it? And so, so let me take a step back. And the definition that I've built my career on is a definition that was created by the late Dr. Roosevelt Thomas Jr. 
and I think you've gotten to know Dr. Thomas. Uh, he passed away several years ago. He was very much a thought leader in this space. Many considered him to be the the founding father of corporate diversity, right? So he defined diversity as any collective mixture that's characterized by differences, similarities, and their related tensions and complexities. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, there's nothing inspirational about that <laughs> definition, right? And, but you think about there's a couple of key words in that definition. One is differences, which most people think about in diversity. But the other key word is similarities. When we get into these conversations about diversity, so many times we jump right to what makes us different. And we don't spend any time focused on what makes us similar. And I think the other two key words of that definition are tensions and complexities. And, you know, again, people think that I don't want to get into this diversity stuff because it's tense, it's complex. Tension and complexities are just realities, right? The more diverse we are, the more tensions and complexities we're going to have. The key is understanding how to leverage those to all of our benefit. So I think if we can get smart about defining the work up front, who would not want to get better at managing similarities and differences and working through tensions and complexities towards your organizational objectives? That's what diversity is. People misconstrue it as being equal to affirmative action and EEO. And while those things have some things in common with diversity, they're not one and the same. And so what is the definition of diversity at CVS Health? And what's the definition of inclusion? We really do approach it, the, the term diversity, from the standpoint that it is any collective mixture, right? Mm-hmm. So when people ask me how well does CVS Health manage diversity, what I lead off with is the very nature of our business model. We have on one side of our business a uh, pharmacy benefits management company, which one of our biggest parts of the business is getting your prescriptions by mail order. On the other side, you have retail pharmacy where we want people to come into our stores. So back when the companies came together in 2008, Wall Street said, you have got to be crazy. Why would you take these two diametrically opposed business models and try to bring them together? And what we we have done that, we've done it very successfully, and we created market disruptive products and services as a result of that. So when people ask me how well we manage diversity, I lead with that story. And that gets them thinking right out the gates wow, this diversity stuff is really broad. I I thought you were going to jump in how many women and people of color you have, which I get to that eventually, right? But I don't start with that. So I I think that's that's how we think about diversity and inclusion is really how do you build a company culture where people can bring bring their full selves to work and contribute at a level that everybody's going to win. And, and contribute towards your organizational objectives. So just having diversity is not enough. It's about how do you how do you leverage that diversity towards making sure that everybody can fully participate. I love this. You you captured diversity at CVS Health as an eclectic mixture were the words that jumped out to me. The other words on the inclusion side was bringing your full self to work. So that there's a subtle thing you did with the diversity term and you tied it to business results. In the eclectic, bringing two different businesses together, how do you bridge that in an organization that's 240,000 strong and get them to get that message? That's a tough – David, that's a very – that's an intellectual – I'm sorry, but that's an intellectual (laughs) leap that you're expecting people to just connect the dots automatically. What What was one of your first wins at CVS when you stepped into the role? I never said it was easy. <laughs> oh man, I, I go to home. I go home pretty tired every night. So, but yeah, it, it is a challenge to get people to. I think one of the keys was 
to be quite honest, Bill, going back to that broad definition, giving everybody a definition of diversity where everyone can see themselves, not just in the definition, but also understand what role they have to play or they can play in helping the company execute. So I honestly believe that starting off with, let me give you a quick example. In a former life um, at my last company, I had a meeting with a group of leaders in New Hampshire. And this is not to beat up on New Hampshire. New Hampshire is New Hampshire. But I walked in the room. I was early on in my career there. And I walked into this room of about, you know, 40 or 50 leaders. And, um, you know, here comes this six foot three bald black guy to talk about diversity in New Hampshire. And you could have cut the, uh, the, the, the tension in the room with a knife when I walked in. They thought I was going to come in and just take them to task on the fact that nobody else in the room looked like me. But what I said was, I said, look, again, let's be clear about what we're talking about. I don't see a lot of representation in this room. It was mostly white men. I said, but there still could be a significant amount of diversity, diversity of religious background, socioeconomic background, military experience, um, sexual orientation. So when I, when I try to get everybody clear about the language, you could feel this collective sigh of not necessarily relief because they knew we still had work to do, but this collective sigh of Okay, well, this conversation is going to include me as well. And so on this path from diversity to inclusion, can you skip diversity and go straight to inclusion? Or do I have to start with diversity? You know, that's a darn good question. (laughs) Let me just say, I will say this. You have to have both. You can't, I wouldn't advise it, but you can start with inclusion and get to diversity. What I would advise is that you figure out how to, to understand and, and leverage diversity first and then build upon that to, to make sure you're engaging in inclusion. So, But I think the most important thing about that question, Bill, is to make sure that you're doing both simultaneously. I don't think it's a linear process. You know, for so for example, if I go out and I, I recruit this 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 team, and I've got uh, an African-American or a black employee. I've got a Hispanic or a Latino. I've got a woman. I've got a military veteran. I've got a person with a disability. You can look at that team on the surface and say, wow, that's a very diverse team. I've done a good job with getting diversity. But if that team sucks, <laughs> if none of them are good <laughs> at their jobs, and quite frankly, I'm not leveraging them um, and leveraging the strengths they bring to the organization, it doesn't matter. I've got to do both, right? But I would say in today's environment, in a rapidly changing environment, if you want to remain relevant, you have to pay attention to diversity. You you can ignore it, but you you may do that at your own risk and at your own peril because we are an increasingly diverse society. I don't care if you're B2B, B2C, not-for-profit. It doesn't matter. The constituents we have to serve are increasingly diverse. So it will behoove you as an organization to start there and then make sure you can understand how to manage that diversity through inclusion once you have it. Okay. And so what what I'm, I'm clearly hearing you say is you need to do both. You can't just ignore one or the other. It's not really linear. And so as you and I both know, in order to get an initiative moving, I don't care if you're talking IT, culture, diversity, inclusion, the senior leadership team has got to get on board. They have got to support it. How are you able to accomplish that in your career? Yeah. You know, I've been fortunate in both companies where I've had the opportunity to be a chief diversity officer. They're both Fortune 50 companies. And in both situations, I actually interviewed with the CEO in both cases. 
So uh, even though at Anthem, my job was several layers below the CEO, probably five or, or six at the time when I first started there, they still had me interview with the CEO, which I was impressed by. And when I got to CBS, I actually had more than a dozen interviews for the job, one of which was uh, with the CEO as well. So for me, I, I've been fortunate that I've, I've come into two companies that understood that that senior level leader buy-in from the top had to be critical from the get-go. Now, I'll tell you, what. Um, one of the things I think that's helped me along the way is gaining trust with those leaders, that they wouldn't feel like they had to walk on eggshells or be politically correct, which is the term of the day. They felt like, you know, I, I hope that I've built the level of trust with them or, or I've gotten feedback from them that I've done that, whereby they could make mistakes. They could they could say something that maybe they didn't mean to say or didn't want to say, but but knew that I would help them figure out, you know, how to go about it a different way. So I think, quite frankly, one of the best ways to get your leadership there, uh, to be honest, Bill, is to, to admit, for one, you don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers just because I was born black doesn't mean I understand everything automatically there is to know about diversity. So some companies will put a person of color or a woman in charge of diversity just because of who they are. And I don't think that's right. So I admit up front that sometimes I get it wrong, you know, and I think that breaks down the barrier and kind of opens them up to have the conversation is, you know, you begin to build that level of trust. Right. It's interesting that you said, you know, sometimes they say things that they didn't mean and you create you created an atmosphere for them to get comfortable. One of the things I've experienced in, in my career in this in in this space is senior leaders are under a microscope. So they're they're at risk of saying something that has this catastrophic unintended consequence. How did you go about gaining the trust and respect in order to get the senior leaders that comfortable? I mean, because you not only have diversity, you've got EEO. You've got a whole bunch of stuff that most diversity and inclusion people don't have in their career. And you know that. How did you gain all of that? Because that's so highly unusual. Yeah. You know, quite frankly, I, I'm, I'm excited that I have all of it. In some organizations, they split apart the diversity team from the EEO and the affirmative action team. I've got all of that reporting into me. And that allows me to have the opportunity uh, to have the conversation with people about how they're different. Because even though they are reporting into me, they are different teams. So I've got a diversity team, a diversity management team, actually, is what we refer to them as. And then I've got an EEO and affirmative action team. And they do different bodies of work. Now, they are complementary in some aspects. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, diversity is more than race and gender, but it is still about race and gender. There is a component of it that that deals with those demographics. So, um, you know, for me, I think it's a blessing in disguise that I maybe not in disguise that that I've got all of it because that gives me the opportunity to explain to people why it all reports to me, but why I have them split up on the separate teams. Okay. And so how do you go about getting them to – to get on board, and how much time does that take? Man, that's a tough question. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does take time. Diversity management in an organization, especially when you're starting anew, it's culture shaping. I mean, you know, you you have to you have to help people understand their thinking, right? And and how their thinking drives their behaviors, and how those behaviors drive outcomes. So if you can really get them focused on a process and, and a methodology of, of, of why things are the way they are, that helps, 
you know, there there used to be a model in this work that I'm going to forget the name of the company that that used this model many years ago. But it was three components of this model in diversity. It was the head, the heart, and the hands. And um, I still buy into that because I think all three are important. So if you start with the head, you give them the I hate this this term, but I'm going to use it anyway. The business case for diversity. Right. <laughs> Why does this matter to me at the end of the day? How is it going to help us win as an organization? So sometimes I'll start with that and just say, look, it doesn't really matter how you feel. Doesn't matter, quite frankly, doesn't even may not even matter how you think. Here's how it's impacting the business. If I have to start there, that's fine. But at some point, I think for you to have sustained change and get that kind of traction that's going to be ongoing, at some point you have to understand where you can engage them in the heart. So what does matter to them? You know, there's been a study uh, not too long ago that showed the CEOs that have daughters who are of working age or will soon be of working age who are in college tend to have a pretty good representation of female leaders in their companies. Because I think they get to that point in their lives where they're saying, is this the kind of company where I would want my daughter to work? So you got you to get to know folks and understand what part of the heart can you engage. And then the third piece of that is the hand. You got to do something. We can talk about it all day long, but if we don't actually do things that are going to drive change, it doesn't matter. It's just a good conversation. And so you basically define diversity and inclusion as culture shaping. Now, you know, we, we do culture shaping for a living. That, <laughs> I've heard I mean, that. It, it, you know, and I've been doing transformations since 94. When did you learn culture shaping? Actually, I learned culture shaping. Um, I had accountability for culture shaping in my previous job at Anthem. And my title was vice president of workplace culture and chief diversity officer. And I I picked up the workplace culture piece in large part because a big part of our business model was growing through mergers and acquisitions. And we knew there were plenty of case studies. There was the Hewlett Packard case study a couple of years before. There are plenty of case studies that showed that you can you can integrate IT systems. You can merge uh, accounting systems, right? But if you don't find a way to effectively and, and efficiently merge corporate cultures, that's a huge risk. We even listed the risk of culture integration in our proxy statement when we did the merger between Anthem and WellPoint because our leadership, again, understood the, uh, the, the impact of culture shaping on the ability to have a successful merger or acquisition. So you stop and think about that, Bill. And so here I have accountability for diversity and then we bring in this workplace culture piece. They're, they're one and the same. We were taking two, at that point, pretty disparately different company cultures. WellPoint was a very top-down driven culture. Everything was driven by, you know, decisions are made up here and everybody else executes. Anthem was an extremely collaborative culture where you didn't sneeze unless you got agreement from 15 people <laughs> that it was okay to sneeze. And we had to figure out how are we going to meet in the middle? What, we know that the sweet spot is probably somewhere in the middle of those two. So I, I applied diversity management principles to culture shaping and vice versa. I explained to people that what we're trying to do with culture integration is diversity management. They're, 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 they're really one and the same. And so if a leader wants to learn about diversity and inclusion and to that point, culture shaping, yeah. where do they start? Oh, man, I'll tell you. What I would recommend, and I just met with a group of college students not too uh, long ago, a couple of weeks ago, and they asked, you know, how do we get into this field? What do we do? What do we need to study and learn? Uh, the the blessing is that there is a significant body of work out there about diversity now that wasn't there 17 years ago when I started. 
But what was there 17 years ago when I started that I would still encourage people to bone up on is the work of Dr. Thomas. I'll, I'll go back to him. He was a mentor of mine. He was a friend of mine. So, so definitely that plays into how much respect I have for his body of work. But Dr. Thomas was always thought of as a visionary. He was always five. You know, you've met mm-hmm. Dr. Thomas. Yeah. He was five, ten years ahead of everybody else. When he wrote his um, dissertation on diversity in the 60s, as an African-American Morehouse grad, people thought it was going to be on the tensions between blacks and whites. But he wrote his diversity dissertation on how to help different business units of companies work more effectively together. How do you help the operations team deliver on what the sales team is out there pitching they can do, right? They may not be able to deliver on it. So I think, again, it goes back to digging deep into the body of knowledge that's out there. And I would recommend that any person wanting to get into this reads what Dr. Thomas wrote, because a lot of it is timeless. The unfortunate truth about this work, to be honest, is we're in 2017 now, and the things that were true in 2001 when I started doing this work are still true today. (laughs) So many of the same principles, the same framework, the same terminology, those things, it's pretty consistent. (laughs) So I would say, yes, you got to read. You got to learn. The good news about this profession is that there is no one track to get here. Okay. That's also the bad news (laughs) because everybody believes they can do it. And it's not just a matter of, oh, I think diversity feels good or sounds good. I'm just going to jump into it. So so you can bring many different professional disciplines to this job, but you also have to be a student of the discipline. And I think we're at risk of that because we as diversity practitioners don't have a universal definition of diversity. We don't have a universal credential that says I'm qualified to do this job. So I think the the good news is we come from different backgrounds, but that's also, I think, a serious challenge in the sustainability of the profession. And so where did you learn the ability to manage transformation, change, chaos? Because you brought, I mean, come on, there were some bumps and bruises in there. There, there were some horror stories. There's some failures in there, David. You, you, I mean, you, you've been telling me the glowing stuff. Let's let's get let's let's peel the onion back. Let's let's go deeper. Where does failures come into play that lead to successes wow. in the DNI space? Man, I knew you were going to ask me some good <laughs> questions. So yeah, I think you have to be prepared to fail, quite frankly. And I, you know, look, I, I would say you're not going to be successful in DNI unless you make some mistakes along the way. And what I've tried to encourage people to to understand and be comfortable with is that in this space, because people are so complex, organizations are so complex, whatever mixtures you're trying to to manage through differences and similarities, we are so complex. You have to understand and get comfortable with first-time mistakes are errors. Repeated mistakes are intentions. So you have to be prepared that you are going to make a mistake along the way. Um, And one example I'd like to share to, to, again, kind of have people relax a little bit and, and and dive into the work is many years ago, I was having a conversation with a fellow, uh, another gentleman here in the community, and uh, he was also African-American and about six foot eight. And we were talking about where we both went to college. And I said, how was it to play ball where you went to school? 
play basketball. Mm -hmm. And he said, I didn't play basketball in college. Why (laughs) why do you think I played basketball in college? I'm like, you're six foot eight and you're black. (laughs) So, you know, and you went to college. You you played basketball. And um, he said, no, as a matter of fact, I was a horrible athlete. So the reason I share that story with people is, again, to get them comfortable with none of us gets it right all the time. You know, and and you have to be willing to work through some tensions and complexities. I wasn't at CVS Health in 2008 when the company came together, when Caremark came together and CVS Pharmacies came together. But I can guarantee you there were tensions in the room when we some of our leaders were told you have to give up some of your retail share to get customers to get their prescriptions by mail order and vice versa. I can guarantee you there was tension in the room. But getting people to focus on the greater good I think uh, makes it easier to work through those tensions that and, and people are selfish. Everybody's in it for what, what's in it for me, right? <laughs> right. But I think getting people to focus on the greater good is uh, is is one way to 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 move beyond those tensions and and some of that that duking it out that's going to happen when you bring these these different you know right. mixtures together. Okay. And, and so the duking it out piece. I mean, I, I know of a lot of DNI professionals who who as soon as they take the role. They're taking a duking it out role. How does a leader in DNI move themselves out of that stigma, out of that position? You know, because in the past, and I and I, I carried on some of these roles uh, in addition to my day to day job. It was almost like you put your career on. I mean, you were on you were on death nail. You you just capped your career. You're done, yeah. right? Because you're defending the diversity people. You know, I think one of the things that are key for DNI practitioners is to position themselves as business leaders. You know, when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a senior executive at CVS Health. My subject matter expertise happens to be in diversity and inclusion or diversity management, as we refer to it as well. I don't lead with I'm the diversity guy. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think if you can position yourself as somebody who's there to help the company meet your organizational objectives, we all bring different professional disciplines. Right. Mm -hmm. You got to have people who are finance professionals. You have to have people who are HR professionals, IT professionals. Why should we look at diversity any different? Diversity is a business capability, not a set of projects and initiatives targeted at a group of people. It's a business capability. And, and so, David, now I'm going to push back a little bit. Okay, you you did spend some of your career in the business. You know, you had some P&L. You had revenue generating responsibilities. Come on, David. You know, <laughs> let's let's be, you know you you brought some things. What if I don't have that? Yeah. What what if what if that is not in my arsenal, my toolkit, my bag of tricks? You know, if you don't have it, I, I would still say that that's a competency that someone who's in this space is going to have to build. You have to be seen as a business leader. You know, so so for example, with my team at CVS, when I when I coach them on how to go out and work with the the P&L owners and mm-hmm. and the other business leaders, what I tell them is don't lead the conversations with all the answers you think you're coming to the table with. Lead the conversation with questions. You know, what are you trying to get done? What's important to you? What are you struggling with? What keeps you awake at night? How do you how does your team make money? How do how does your team lose money? You need to ask a lot more questions than than you need to provide answers. So I, I think if you don't have that in your background and your arsenal, one of the best ways to get there and again build that level of trust and credibility with the business leader is make sure they understand you're there to help them be successful, you know, and and you all play on the same team. I try to tell people all the time, I'm not the diversity police. At the end of the day, (laughs) 
my the the logo on my paycheck is the same as yours. You know, right. we're all here working towards the same objective. So I think if a, a DNI professional can help that leader understand that they are there to help them be successful, you don't have to have run a large budget. You don't have to have had a line job, but you have to have them trust you that you want to understand their business. You want to understand what they're trying to do to be successful, and then they'll pull you in. So so I'm hearing that, you know, the trust and respect has got to get earned. So as leaders in the business, and, and let's talk about not just the DNI folks, but even as a leader in the business, what should I be cautious about not listening to? Man, I think, uh, wow, not what not what should you not listen to? I think if you you kind of have to trust your gut. If if you if you're going down a path where you feel like you haven't done everything possible to bring all the right perspectives into a decision you're trying to make, or if you look around that table and you and you, and you feel in your gut that there's a perspective missing, that there there's a um, there's some insights missing from that table. You have more work to do. So I think if you if you if you listen if you're listening to anything or buying into anything that's telling you to block all that out, that you have all the answers. If you're listening to anybody or anything that says as a leader you have all the answers and you have to have all the answers as a leader, you should tune that out. That is probably the worst thing you can do. To, to, to move towards being good at diversity and inclusion. If you think that you have all the answers mm-hmm. or that you have to have all the answers by yourself without bringing in other perspectives, that's going to be your downfall. I really like what you said about look around the table. And if I'm lacking a gay, lesbian, I'm, I'm lacking someone who's black, I'm lacking a Hispanic. You said perspective. So you know where I'm going next. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I will say, though, that perspective and representation are not mutually exclusive, but can a company in today's multicultural environment, right, with the rapidly growing Hispanic and Latino consumer marketplace and 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 communities and and uh, you know with uh, um, Asians growing in representation, black people haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. So and, and, and you know there are more women in the workplace right. now. There are more people with disabilities now. You think about veterans coming back, right. right? So so you can you can use any demographic of diversity you want. Can you as a company? serve a constituency that's made up of all these different groups without having them around the table? Of course you can. Is it going to take you longer to get there? Are you going to have to spend more money on outside consulting to get those perspectives? Probably so. Are you going to risk becoming irrelevant to that market before you get the answers? Probably so. So yeah, you can do it, but I wouldn't advise it. I would advise that you focus on getting that representation to get the perspectives. I okay. think I think they're I think they're they're aligned. And and so your journey when you started at CVS in the role that you have, how is it viewed in comparison to where you are now? Wow. Uh but I would say when I when I think back to the eight years ago when I started at CVS Health, it was a new role. They had someone leading diversity initiatives before I got there, but that's how they were viewed as diversity initiatives. And they knew that they wanted to elevate the role. Uh, It was created as a vice president level role. So they knew there was something more to it than what the company was getting at the time. So I would say, again, I was fortunate that I came into an environment where there was some acknowledgement that this is critical to our business. But not everybody really knew exactly what it should be, what it could be, what it might be. Where I've probably evolved and grown the most in eight years 
is again going back to that conceptual clarity around what it what is it? When we say as a company we're committed to managing diversity, do we all even know what we're talking about? Are we all talking about the same thing? So um, I just had this conversation with my boss about a couple of years ago. And uh, so at that point, I would have been five years into the job. I said, you know what? I'm really starting to feel like this is getting the kind of traction I would hope to see. And what do I mean by that? Business leaders are now knocking on my door, calling my team and saying, hey, we have a strategy session coming up. We need you and your team to come in and be a part of our strategy session. When I first got to the company, I was knocking on doors saying, hey, can I come in and talk to you about how diversity management can help you succeed in business? Now, so I always say chief diversity officers will know they're successful when your phone starts ringing and, and your, there are knocks at your door as opposed to you having to knock on doors and pick up the phone. What, what are those tactical things that an organization needs to do? Where does an organization begin? Do I have to start at the top? Do I have to get the middle? Because the ultimate is I've got to get the business leaders knocking on my door. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think you – I'll put it this way. Whether or not you have to start at the top can be debatable, but I always have because that's where the resources are. That's where the direction gets set for the organization. So, so yeah, there are other ways of going about it, but I think if you want to have a clearer path and, and break down some barriers, it's good to start at the top. But you can't stop there because as great as we are as senior leaders or as great as we think we are, we don't get work done. The, the work gets done at the entry level, at the mid-level. So I think in addition to having that senior leader, leader buy-in, that casting that the shadow of a leader, right, you have to have a way that you can empower and equip all colleagues to play a role in, 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 in delivering on this. So where did those two converge? Where did they meet? They meet in the middle, which quite frankly is as a DNI practitioner, that's where your biggest challenge is going to be. I don't care what organization you work for. You're going to have a challenge with middle management. And it's not to beat up on middle management. It's just that that's where most of the organization's work converges. I think if you can figure out a way, you have to start with leaders, make sure they understand how what you do is going to help the organization, find a role for every colleague at the at the entry levels to play in the organization, then that'll converge in the middle where you, you have a stronger likelihood of getting the kind of traction that I think you'll need. Mm. We've spent a lot of time you know, talking about the diversity piece. Let's shift on this inclusion thing. How do you create an inclusive culture? Well, I, I think, you know... Having people understand that, uh, first of all, your mom is a very wise woman, so I, I think she she gave you some good stuff to work with. David, I completely agree. <laughs> you uh, thanks, better, mom. She might listen to thanks, this. mom. Thanks, mom. <laughs> I would say part of it is, again, as a leader, and I learned this in the Marine Corps, by the way, you're only as good as the weakest link on your team. Now, now, granted, not every leader is going to look at their team that way. I think that's a challenge, but the good leaders will understand you're only as good as the weakest link on your team. And again, you have to take a step back to say, do I have all of the right skill sets, backgrounds, views, perspectives? Do I have all that? On, do I have the right ones on my team to help me succeed? Now, look, our natural tendency as human beings is to surround ourselves by people who are like us. That's easy. I would love to have a team of David Casey's, right, <laughs> who, who thinks like David, talks like David, works like David. But I also understand that's going to bring me some shortfalls in what I need to get done because I'm going to miss something, right? The other analogy I, I, I draw to 
I'm a sports guy. I grew up playing basketball and football, so I apologize for anybody who's not a sports guy. I say diversity is putting that that squad together, right? You've got your point guard, you've got your shooting guard, you've got your wingman, you've got your strong forward, and you've got your center. So you've got the team, and, and, and you've rounded out your bench. But if everybody doesn't get to play, how long of a season are you going to have? Think about the NBA. They have to play 90-something games. Everybody on that team is going to have to contribute at some point for them to win. That's inclusion. You know, if we tried to win, if we try to play a 90-something game season with five players, that ain't going to happen. You know, so I think you have to find a way to not only invite people to the game, but make sure they get an opportunity to play. I'm, I'm going to round out your inclusion piece on the sports analogies. We'll throw in some soccer. My son played soccer. And one of the things I, I learned, soccer's a lot like basketball. It's actually played with the triangle offense, same formations, give and goes. One of the things his soccer coach taught him and the, the players when they were real little, and that is the ball is round for everyone. The ball <laughs> is round for everyone. And, and I use that and as we talk about inclusion, right? Because to play soccer, you just need a ball. You don't need a field. You can play it on the streets. You can play it in the house, as my son did growing up. Same thing, right? David, um, the magic wand question is this. If you had a magic wand and you could change it, change something immediately in the diversity and inclusion space, what, what would be that one thing you would advise people to change or make an impact on immediately? They, they had the power. They've got the magic wand. You know, Bill, I have to go back to, and I'll try to make, the, make this a succinct answer because I, I can talk about it all day long, but I think it's critical. We have to get the language right. If we as diversity practitioners have people putting up a guard as soon as we walk in because they think they might be tired of talking about affirmative action. They might be tired of talking about EEO, but how can you get tired of talking about diversity? I think if we can get the language right so that we're all talking about the same thing, if I could wave a magic wand, that would be it. All right. Thank you for your time. <laughs> I appreciate this. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.